Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. We take a look at the week on world markets and the bizarre drop in defense stock values in the wake of the aborted mutiny in Russia. And Spirit Aerosystems strikes a deal with its unions to avert a strike at the company's critically important facilities. The U.S. Army has selected GD Land Systems and Rheinmetall for its optionally manned fighting vehicle to replace the Bradley fighting vehicle with implications for Australia and Korea. As France works to increase its defense budget, Germany will be approving a massive spending increase on ammunition and equipment. One of China's J-20 stealth fighters flew for the first time with a Chinese-developed WS-15 engine, uh, or I should say uh, Chinese-developed WS-15 engines uh, that could have implications for COMAX C-919 regional jetliner, a Paris story that we will discuss today, Leonardo partnering with Korea's Hanwha to develop advanced electronically scanned array uh, radar arrays, and the FAA grants Joby Aviation a special airworthiness certificate for the company's first production version of its electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft with its Uh, for delivery to its first customer in 2024 that happens to be the United States Air Force under $131 million agility prime contract, uh, or I should say a contract worth as much as $131 million. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Uh, Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you for having us. Yeah, highlight of the weekend, Vago. Thank you. Uh, and thanks very much uh, to all of you uh, for joining us. Uh, Ron, I want to start off with you, right? I mean, the economy is really humming along uh, in the United States. It's getting stronger in Europe, right? There's that schizophrenic debate about, uh, you know, uh, you know whether we're going into a recession or we're not going into a recession. But putting all of that aside, um, you know, the, the group kind of had a bumpy ride, started off the week uh, rough in the wake of uh, Wagner CEO and, and now next man waiting to be assassinated by the FSB, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who mounted an aborted uh, mutiny, um, you know, right bumpy week uh, for, for the stocks. Uh, we discussed this with uh, Byron uh, on last Monday's show, kind of walk us through like what happened over the course of the week, the bump, and why actually in some respects, it sort of didn't make any sense uh, given fundamentally not all that much changed, right? Russia is still at war with Ukraine and trying to undermine governments worldwide and China is still China. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, in the end, the S&P was up 2.8% in the week. Uh, so it's a strong week and it accelerated into the end of the week. And you have to bear in mind, um, many people left the office. You know, Thursday, Friday was a, a lightly attended day in the office. Monday, it will be virtually nobody around. So we're into kind of holiday trading, but um, you know, the economic numbers were, were reasonable, uh, but you have interesting crosswinds, right? I mean, I think the, uh, the consensus view now is you'll see the Fed raise one or two more times. And uh, that'll put us, you know, kind of in that mid five and a half percent range when it's all said and done, possibly. Um, the names in, you know, the aerospace defense world that, uh, you know, traded the best this week, best meaning, you know, the highest and you know, the biggest moves positively were the more speculative names or the, the, the names that are more perceived with uh, a higher level of risk. Uh, and those are generally uh, the SPAC names. So when SPAC we don't cover, we'll talk about a little bit later, 
is Jovi. Jovi Aviation was up 62, 62% this week. But other names like we do cover, you know, Rocket Labs is up 12% uh, in the in the core aero complex. Embraer was up almost 9%. Uh, when you look at the, you know, the, the bigger large cap names, uh, you know, Raytheon was up 2.5%, Northrop 2.5%, Boeing 2.5%. Everybody kind of traded in line with the S&P, which on a holiday week, you honestly wouldn't really be surprised by. But, you know, that for all the, the, the crazy headlines coming out of Russia, at the end of the day, the week actually ended up being pretty boring. Um, boring, positive boring, right? Um, when you look at things like uh, the 10-year, the 10-year yield did go up on the economic use. 10-year yield went up 10 basis points. We're climbing back to that 10-year uh, yield of almost 4%. We're uh, 3.85, almost 3.9. Um, that's up from last week. Uh, you know, WTI and Brent crude have been at the same level. It's almost like a flat putting green. WTI at 70, Brent at 75, the VIX at 13 and a half. We've been there now for a while. Um, so we'll so we'll see where it goes. Uh, I would I would expect this upcoming week, because uh, of the way we're Fourth of July falls on the Tuesday, um, will be another uh, really quiet trading week. So, um, so I would expect this week to you know if I were to guess today, uh, it'll probably be a positive trading week unless there's some sort of you know crazy um, news on you know the geopolitical front or the the macroeconomic front very much a risk on week as uh, we were uh, talking uh, as, as we were getting ready to start. And a quick programming note, uh, the normal Monday show will be happening on Wednesday with Sam Bendet and Byron Callen. Then we're going to have a nice uh, roundup on all power show as opposed to our normal air power uh, show that we have on Thursdays and our regular uh, weekly roundtable in part because there are going to be so few people around on Monday. And obviously it's uh, America's 247th birthday uh, on, uh, on uh, Tuesday. Uh, uh, Sash, a um, uh, lot going on uh, in Europe. France is looking at a six-year defense plan that will, you know, uh, depending on how political negotiations go, come in at a whopping $413 billion. That's up from $289 billion for the last six-year uh, defense law. Germany is going to be spending more money and is about to drop a lot more money. Um, so this is all looking like good news. And yet um, sort of an interesting week in uh, Europe uh, in the wake of, of the whole Progression affair. Kind of walk us through the group's performance and, and some of the underlying drivers. Yeah. So last Monday morning, um, it was carnage on the screens. Uh, European defense stocks were every single one was off 5% or more. Um, and you know, our view is this is understandable, but this is dumb investing or dumb trading. Um, we, we, we've seen this before. We saw this, uh, for example, um, last summer uh, when the Ukrainian um, offensive around Kharkiv was, was going very well. When there's positive news about the um, uh, war, i.e. the Ukrainians are doing well, there is a subset of investors and traders that says, if, if Ukraine is doing well, the war will be over sooner and the whole defense trade will unwind. Nobody's going to need defense equipment anymore. Therefore, we sell the stocks. It, it, I mean, it's hard to know where to start, but this is a very, very identifiable uh, trade that some people put on. Um, and uh, it then takes a lot of explaining just why it is that, you know, even if the war stopped tomorrow, and spoiler alert, it's not going to, um, European nations are going to have to restock because we have run our stocks of ammunition and in some cases armored vehicles and missiles down to the well below the bare minimum and um you know take a five-year view the likelihood is that the us is going to be less committed to europe rather than more committed to europe uh, if only because of the the you know constant preoccupations of, of dealing with china and that being the case europe is going to have to step up and be able to deal with russia 
all on our own. And again, spoiler alert, we can't do that at the moment. So, um, it, it, you know, these share price uh, reactions where Ukraine does well, or, or in this case, you know, it looks like Russia's going to collapse and defence stocks just get sold off brutally is um, incredibly frustrating because it is so dumb. Uh, but you know, we're sort of getting used to it now. Actually, by the end of the week, as with um, what Ron was saying about the US, but um, rather more muted, most of the stocks have clawed back most of those losses. The defence stocks in Europe closed about 0.4% down on average for the week. Civil stocks closed up about 1.2%. But actually within that, Airbus was up 4%. Really good performance by Airbus um, for the week. That was probably the standout. But on the other hand, Rolls-Royce was down 5%. So, you know, it, it, there were some very, very differentiated uh, performances this week. European budgets, um, and you're, you're absolutely right, the French uh, Loi de Programmation, um, which is the, the programme law uh, that sets the defence budget now for a seven-year term, looks absolutely fantastic. Um, defence spending growth is going to be up, you know, better part of 7% per annum. Here's the problem. I don't, we don't speak to a single investor in France who thinks there is a cat's chance in hell of this money actually coming through. And what they point to is social turmoil. And the fact that President Macron is, um, you know, a lame duck president, uh, he has no majority uh, to speak of in uh, in uh, Parliament itself. And if you look at what's been happening in France in the last, uh, well, four nights now, there have been massive riots going on. Now, they concern the shooting by police of a, uh, a youth um, and, uh, you know, the, the reasons for that and so forth don't look at all edifying but the shocking thing is just the degree to which this has brought uh, major towns in and cities in in France out in force and so investors we talk to in France say look the social turmoil is too much there's no social consensus for spending on defense um, this may be what the government wants but it's not going to happen we'll see um, but you know France I'm afraid rather like Spain and the UK is so far away physically from uh, the, the war in Ukraine and French politicians are so far away from the war in Ukraine. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of suspicion elsewhere in Europe that President Macron really wants to, to see a separate European foreign policy and, you know, if in doubt, do a deal with Putin. Um, right. And if that's the case, will that spending happen? It feels less likely. By contrast, look at Germany. Germany, um, the special fund, which has taken a hell of a long time to uh, to actually come through. You remember, this is the 100 billion euros extra money that Johnson Schultz announced uh, over a year ago. But the um, German Budgetary Committee and the Bundestag is actually voting on a, on a big chunk of, of that expenditure uh, this coming week, um, probably including up to 10 billion of uh, ammunition and, and vehicles uh, orders, uh, a pro significant proportion of which will probably drop through to Rheinmetall and, and, and KMW. So the German spending is happening. But of course, the German spending is much more limited. The French Loire de Programmation will be fantastic if it happens, but we're not seeing it in the share price of Thales. It's only up 15% this year. The uh, defence average is up over 20%. Right. Uh, and I should point out that it was the shooting of a young man, uh, Nahel uh, M. in Nanterre. Uh, police said, you know, he plowed into police officers, and it turns out that, you know, there was video that showed that actually wasn't the case. Uh, and um, and that's sparked this sort of the inequality that uh, characterizes France and polarizing the nation to sort of the law and order camp uh, and those um, who uh, decry what they see to be uh, 
um, systemic discrimination uh, to uh, France's uh, minorities. Um, and at the time that we were taping the show, uh, President Emmanuel Macron uh, has postponed his visit uh, to Germany. And we are taping this a little bit earlier because of the holiday weekend. Um, just real, one uh, quick uh, question, uh, Sash, uh, follow up is uh, in, in the wake of the Prigozhin mutiny, I mean, what sort of changes from a European security perspective, right? I mean, it was, it was either a mutiny or an attempted coup, whatever it is, you know, as, as of this taping, Yevgeny Prigozhin hasn't been uh, seen uh, publicly, even if uh, Belarus is building a camp for 8,000 Wagner fighters uh, at an um, abandoned military base. Um, you know, there are now news reports that, you know, Putin, you know, the FSB is is going to put a hit on uh, not just Prigozhin, but there are a number of other people who are uh, have been detained for questioning, including General Surovikin, the commander of the Air Force and the deputy commander of the Ukraine operation. I mean, what what changes in the wake of all of this? Because Russia still has manpower and brutality on its side, right? Yeah, um, I mean, it does. I, look, uh, first point: couldn't have the nicer people. Um, uh, you know, very very happy. Just <laughs> we wish of, them well. We wish, we wish them, them. Yeah, well, we we wish them anyway. Um, let's let's yeah, leave exactly. to that. Um, uh, you know, here's the paradox. Um, uh, I don't think that a uh, oh, you know, Russian defense policy would have changed with a, you know, a Wagner group um, uh, tilt as opposed to its current leadership. Um, you know, Wagner group, after all, has been by, you know, by far the most successful, um, in a rather depressing way, element of the Russian ground forces attack. They clearly want this, to, you know, the, the war in Ukraine to work. So the idea that, um, you know, you have a, a coup, a mutiny, whatever else, and then the war stops, just no evidence for that whatsoever. Um, what is going to happen? I mean, it's very, very hard being a, um, uh, you know, being Putin or a Russian general and trusting anybody uh, in the chain of command at the moment. I think probably the one thing that is slightly more concrete is that it's harder for Putin to threaten use of nuclear weapons because he cannot be as sure today that the chain of command for use of nuclear weapons would work as he was uh, um, a week ago. That's a pretty good thing, frankly. Uh, indeed. Um, uh, Richard, thanks very much for being patient. I'm going to turn to you in a moment, but a quick word from our sponsors. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Uh, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and uh, naval uh, coverage. Um, Richard, uh, any uh, comment you want to make about the whole Prigozhin affair and sort of the vector of uh, our uh, defense strategy toward Russia and anywhere else in the in the wake of it. I mean, what it changes, given that Russia, as Winston Churchill aptly said, is a, 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 an enigma wrapped around a riddle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think this exactly as Sash said. You know, it 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 weakens Russia. It reduces the risk of nuclear weapons, but it certainly increases the prospect of dealing with a long term borderline failed state. You know, or something that is. It marginally kept together about as well as Bashir Assad in Syria. Uh, that I think is probably the, the risk moving forward. I think it also, the whole thing makes President Xi in China look like, oh boy, he is not a smart guy in terms of picking friends here. Uh, this does right. not have any kind of positive read through. So I think from the standpoint, you know, I, I understand the, the momentary, oh my God, defense is such a, you know, maybe this massive upturn we've all been predicting is just going to pass. But 
Mike, I, I, I agree completely with Ron. <laughs> the idea that this lasted anyone's head longer than 60 seconds before they said, no, the world is still a pretty dangerous place and the consequences are very positive for defense. That's, that's kind of weird to me, but obviously the sector recovered quick enough. And we should point out, right, I mean, Putin was allowing Prigozhin to make ever more outlandish statements uh, and actually speak a lot of truth about the um, uh, prosecution of the war. And that was seen as as Putin's way of sort of pushing pressure on his defense minister and on his uh, chief of staff, Shoigu and uh, Gerasimov. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, so there you go, right? I mean, it's the teacher's pet who's saying this and everybody in the system is going, well, I mean, there's a, the reason some of this might be going on again, I mean, regarding some of the confusion about whether or not the Russian military was uh, and security services were complicit or just going like, wait a minute, is this part of some plan uh, that was going on? Obviously, time will tell. All right, uh, let's shift to uh, very briefly, uh, Richard, I'm going to have to ask you about this because before we go to Spirit, we have to talk about the terrible air travel period that we've been in. 2,200 flights were canceled uh, uh, on Tuesday as people were getting ready to go away for a holiday. Uh, some of our mutual friends were involved in this, going back to the airport two or three times uh, before, you know, only to find that there, there was just no way to get out. Um, United was worst hit. Uh, I should point out that the number of um, the cancellations were 360 on Thursday, so they did get better over the course of the week, unless it was your vacation that was impacted. Um, United, you know, was being cursed by a lot of people. The airline blamed uh, air traffic controllers. Some working for the air carrier said, you know, said that that's actually bunk and it was the airline's fault. What what happened? What are the lessons, right? Uh, because this was the busiest air travel week, um, you know, since before the pandemic. And everybody was looking forward to, you know, hey, everybody should have had a lot of warning that this was coming, right? That yeah, it's all- how people will travel for July 4th. Huh. How about that? Yeah, it's all uh, it's all a bit concerning because, I mean, even though it wasn't quite as bad as the last meltdown, it was only, I think, around 2% uh, this time with cancellations as opposed to like 2.5 or 2.8 or something like that the last time. It's still unpleasant if you're on the receiving end and to somebody who's about to get in the back of a plane for, ooh, 30 fun hours of travel uh, on three different flights, I can tell you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a little bit of trepidation here. Um, you know, the blame game. All right. Inadequate capacity at the airline level or brittleness or lack of, you know, good IT systems that are up to snuff or FAA not fully doing its job and facilitizing. Some people even blamed its uh, emphasis on, uh, you know, uh, urban air mobility certification and whatever else. I've heard that bandied okay. around and, and who knows? That's, you know, that's I mean, absurd. That's just simply well, absurd. Yes. That's but just it's simply absurd. Said, I understand. There are a lot of people who say a lot of stupid things. Let's just chalk that up to one of them. Well, yeah. Even if we don't, even if some of us might not like urban air mobility, I don't think you can blame the FAA. (laughs) Anyway, all right, moving on. No, I think I think the idea was that resources that should have been apportioned to getting the air traffic system up had been moved over to certification of UAM and whatever else. Again, can't speak to the veracity. Doesn't sound right. Looks like it sounds like a different pool of personnel. Correct. But nevertheless, it's what's being said. Uh, Anyway, what is going on here? And the answer is, I don't know. You know, (laughs) there are many people you could possibly blame. Uh, Obviously, it's still a tight labor market, tight economy. People reluctant to spend at the peak of the labor market in terms of bringing on. Uh, people. I mean, 99% of what we're talking about comes down to people. Even when we talk supply chain 
for aircraft, yes, castings, forgings. There's some capital intensive stuff, but most of the time it's people and it's a tight labor market. It's really unprecedentedly tight, which is going to produce moments like this. July 4th weekend, that's eh, a recipe for a meltdown. So it is dispiriting that we're at this point in the recovery and things haven't gotten somewhat more normal. Uh, in, in, interesting uh, indeed. Ron, uh, if you want to discuss uh, the whole airline meltdown situation, you're welcome to, or we could talk about the spirit deal and what that means uh, for the industry. This is a drama that we've been, of course, covering for the last couple of weeks. Uh, looks like there is an agreement, although I should say that the first agreement that included a 34% pay raise, if memory serves correctly, uh, had been improved uh, by uh, the union and management. And when it was put to uh, the rank and file, uh, 80% voted it uh, down. Where, where are we now uh, and what will it mean ultimately for the industry, given that we think on a transatlantic basis, there are going to be repercussions to whatever this deal is for any other machinist that's in the aerospace business, which are a few machinists in the aerospace business? Yeah, I mean, they, you're interesting, right? The, when we spoke with Spirit at Paris, they seemed confident that the union would pass it and the union leadership made them feel that way, right? It's understandable. And then the rank and file didn't. Um, second time around, um, they did. Uh, it's interesting. The economics between the two deals um, were different, but you know, the, the second one, by our estimate, was had an NPV of maybe 2% more than the first one. Um, that being said, it got done. Um, those costs ultimately have to get passed through to somebody at some point, somehow. Right. Um, so I, you know, I would imagine, um, and this was the IAM 751 in Wichita, Largely, largely, not exclusively, but largely Boeing stuff. Um, so I would imagine at some point here, Spirit's going to knock on Boeing's door and say, hey, look, our costs went up. Um, uh, I would imagine Boeing's got to be sensitive to that, but I don't know, right? I'm, I'm not managing supply chain for them. So, but but I'm certain that's, if it hasn't happened already, it's going to happen. Uh, and then Boeing has to deal with a similar negotiation uh, next year. Now, right. what's interesting, we, we did some analysis and looked through it. And if you look at the aerospace workers in Wichita um, over the last decade relative to aerospace workers nationally, uh, and you compare those to the aerospace workers in uh, at Boeing in Seattle, um, on a relative basis, the Wichita workers um, have had a rougher deal over the last decade. Um, you know, on, on a relative basis, they've they've kind of lost some some headway where uh, the folks working for Boeing in Seattle actually haven't relative to all their aerospace workers. Uh, and there's always a mix of jobs and engineering and so on and so forth in factory floor. But um, on a relative basis, you know, Boeing workers have, have done better. Um, it's gone up over the last decade compared to the average worker um, and in Wichita hasn't. So it's understandable that maybe the rank and file were upset. You know, they, they hadn't done a negotiation in 13 years. There was pushed off three years because of COVID. It was supposed to be a 10-year thing. So but they got there. That's what's important. So it's done. So come July 5th, you know, we're back up and running and um, that's, you know, good for, for them. It's good for Boeing. It's good for the 737 line. It's good for all of the above. So it's really a good thing that they got there. But ultimately, I don't think it's all that, in the end, I don't think it's all that surprising that you saw labor demanding more in a market where labor can do so. Well, ultimately, we ended up in a 2% delta, right over uh, 34%. I mean, do you know, any, anything before we go on, because there's so much more to discuss, but sort of any, any, anything extra in that extra 2%? Um, and, and how it's likely going to reverberate, whether across the Atlantic. Sash, give us your, your take really quick, and then Richard, you. Uh, look, 34% was and is a great deal compared to European 
uh, wage settlements, uh, extra two percent more is more. Um, this is this will have an inflationary impact across the sector. Richard. Well, let's not compare directly with European because, of course, Europe has a social safety net. It has retirement. It has health care, all this other stuff, whereas the workers here are aggrieved because, you know, it all goes to the same pool. And when you underperform, it's also your retirement, your health care, all the other stuff that makes you uh, a little bit precarious in life. Um, one thing I will say is that, you know, uh, yes, 2% more than 34% is still, wow, that, that's a lot. Um you know, again, they they had underperformed relative to a lot of other machinists in the industry. So I'm, I'm and I'm sympathetic, especially since they have power right now. You, it's not like you can say no. Um, I am concerned, though, about what this says about inflation with this industry, because if you look at the contracts everybody has, you know, that Boeing has with airlines, uh, with obviously Boeing and other OEMs with their suppliers, suppliers with other suppliers, you know, two things about inflation. One, very often there are bans, like you might have pass through escalate and escalation clauses, whatever else, on the basis of a certain percent. But beyond a certain point, it might just be something you have to absorb. And also very often, the, the second is that very often these pass throughs, you know, they might be 100% materials, a lot of percent energy, but only a certain percent labor. You're expected to get that down on your own volition. In other words, a lot of the industry, depending upon their contracts, depending upon these inflation clauses, could be a little bit vulnerable to what's going on here with, again, inflation and for the first time in many decades, labor actually having some negotiating power. All right, uh, let's um, move uh, on. But before we do, a quick, uh, I just want to urge the audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, Pentagon made a major decision, and I think, Sash, you might be uh, best uh, suited uh, in, in part to uh, discuss this. Um, pick GD uh, land systems uh, and Rheinmetall for the optionally manned fighting vehicle. Many thought that BAE would be in the game as well, but they weren't, ultimately. Um, what's this mean for the Pentagon, the German firm that's been on an extraordinary run, and we're going to talk about Hanwha in a minute, right? I mean, if you wanted to see two companies that have really established a global footprint with extraordinary dynamism, it would have to be Hanwha and it would have to be Rheinmetall. Um, and Sash, you wrote that there are actually implications for Australia as well as Korea uh, in this deal. And, and walk us through what this means. And, and Ron, want to get your sense right from a general dynamics perspective, because I think everybody you know, had an expectation that GD Land Systems would be involved in this as well. But go ahead, Sash. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the auctionally manned fighting vehicle, um, I haven't knows how long it will be before it is an unmanned fighting vehicle. I suspect a very long time, but it's a, and I noticed that it's already been renamed, I think the XM30, but uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll see. But this um, has been a long-term program to uh, look at a, an eventual replacement of the, uh, the Bradley uh, fighting vehicles, which have served America incredibly well. Um, and you remember that, you know, this, this particular competition has already been rebid once, um, down select uh, only to two uh, competitors, uh, General Dynamics and Rheinmetall. Uh, we were discussing, you know, before the program, I think some people expected, um, in fact, thought it was very likely that it would be a, a three-way down select, including BA Systems. And, and it's, it's very interesting as to whether ultimately BA 
um, blinked on this one. Uh, I understand they were offering some version of the AMPV or at least something derived from the AMPV. Um, what I think is very interesting there about this for Rheinmetall is Rheinmetall is offering a vehicle that they've developed all on their own dollar, or in their case, euro. Uh, the uh, KF41 Lynx, um, they haven't received a penny of funding from that from the German government. Um, in fact, it, it, it effectively competes with the, uh, the German Puma uh, infantry fighting vehicle, but the difference is that it's got a very, it's got a manned turret, um, Puma is unmanned, and it's big and incredibly heavily armoured. Um, and uh, clearly the, you know, the US Army thinks that this is, uh, this is definitely worth a look. Why is it important? Why does it have ramifications outside the fact that it's an 800 million contract for each of the two uh, contenders to produce prototypes for testing over the next three years? So that makes it you know, significant uh, for, for both companies. Um, it's, I think, important because Rheinmetall is currently offering links uh, in a number, number of countries, most important, which is Australia, um, where they're competing against Hanwar and the um, uh, K21 Redback. I think it's very, very hard to see the Australians buying a vehicle that was not down selected for OMFV. They will clearly be taking a bit of a risk if they, if they um, uh, decide to buy uh, Randall's links. But on the other hand, you know, it's it's got a fifty percent chance it's going to make it through to the uh, to the U.S. Army now. So this this gives links an incredibly strong position in export markets, well ahead of OMFV actually being down selected in our view. Right. Uh, and for those people who don't know what AMPV is, it's the armored multipurpose vehicle. Um, it was down selected, I want to say, about a decade ago uh, to replace um, the, the most populous armored vehicle, at least in Western inventories, which was the M113 uh, with a uh, Bradley based chassis. Uh, that offers significantly more room in the back of the vehicle for you know a number of the variants. I think there are like five uh, the variants uh, to that. Ron, um, how important is this for uh, general dynamics at the end of the day? And how big of a ding is it for BAE's land systems uh, business? Right uh, at Modern Day Marine, I had an opportunity to see the new um, you know BAE Systems uh, amphibious uh, assault vehicle uh, that will be going into Marine Corps service. Obviously, a track vehicle being replaced by a wheeled vehicle. Anyway. What What's this mean for GD net net and their land systems business ultimately? Yeah, I mean it's an important potential you know, new contract down the road, right? Um, land systems is you know, one of the key segments uh, for uh, General Dynamics, and this was a big win. Uh, and yeah, maybe from a also from a you know geopolitical perspective, they'll have the home field advantage. Um, so we'll see. We'll 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 see how it goes. Um, it's it's interesting. We didn't get a lot of questions from investors on it when the when the news came out, but um, it was a it's a sizable contract, right? I mean, I think the the win was about a billion and a half, if I remember right. Um, so it's you know it's a you know, that's that's a big chunky win for a, a land system vehicle. So yeah, it's material for G uh, GD land systems, and um, you know it'll be a, a key focus for you know their product development. I think it's going to be interesting because there are those who've seen the Rheinmetall vehicle. And what was interesting was even early in this competition, the number of people saying like, wow, that's the vehicle to watch. And it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not, um, as we've seen some uh, foreign entries, whether it's Fincantieri, whether Rheinmetall can follow uh, in the steps of a Fincantieri and expanding its, expanding its footprint in the United States. And it will be equally interesting uh, to see uh, Hanwha do that. Speaking of Hanwha, Richard, talk to us about the Leonardo Hanwa deal and what does it mean 
for uh, AISA radars, right? I mean, it's an interesting pairing, obviously, in Leonardo, a company with enormous experience in this, uh, playing a critical role as it does in the Eurofighter uh, program and, and in the European aerospace and electronics industry, I mean, even in the United States uh, through the Leonardo DRS business. Uh, partnering of all companies with Hanwha that a lot of people would not have seen. Now, at this point, it's a memorandum of understanding, and this is one of the big uh, Paris stories that we haven't yet discussed. But what's your what's your sense on that? And Sash would love to get your take as well. Yeah, I think there's so much going on here because, you know, first of all, back up, you know, for the first time since the 80s, everybody wants their own fighter. You know, you had this wonderful period back in the 80s of everybody, even South Africa, Yugoslavia, whoever else, designing their own combat aircraft. Then it all died. The only people who survived were, well, the India and LCA, of course, kept, kind of kept going in its own, you know, sluggish way. And South Korea started up uh, sometime in the middle of all of this with what became the T-50 and now KF-21 Borame. Um, and then everyone's joining. Everyone is joining, you know, led by Turkey, but you know, certainly, um, gosh, even even Saudi Arabia wants its own military helicopter business. You know, <laughs> everyone wants some right. kind of indigenous capability. Taiwan is getting back in the game. You know, Japan and Britain, uh, South Korea still going very strong. Um, what does this mean? You know, well, AESA technology, of course, is one of the great enabling features of current generation fighter aircraft. The U.S. has had a lock on AESAs aside from, you know, a couple of European houses. Um, and here you had the KF-21 being developed at a time where the U.S. was reluctant to export this capability. Um, we saw this before back with what was the FSX became the F-2 in Japan. You know, they were uh, creating this, um, um, you know, sort of a early, very early AESA capability, if memory serves. And they had to do a lot of it in country with Mitsubishi and, and whatever else. Here, you know, the Koreans said, yeah, well, we're going to partner with Leonardo and we're going to create our own export-driven AISA. And it looks like it won't have any U.S. content, which, you know, again, I think the implications here long-term for U.S. industry are profound. The fighter market is fragmenting. Um, U.S. industry is used to being part of that to the tune of like, ah, the F-16, the F-35, we get 60% of the export market or more, we win. And instead, you've just got lots of homegrown programs, which might not have very much U.S. content at all. So right. I think this is something that has to be watched from the standpoint of U.S. policymakers contemplating export arms reform and whatever else, as well as U.S. companies that won't have the luxury of being on a platform that overwhelmingly dominates the export fighter market in 15 years time or whatever it is. So I think it's an interesting development, especially since the Koreans across the board are massively increasing uh, their share of the global arms market, whether it's tanks or howitzers or combat aircraft, whatever else, Poland leading the way. Um, I, I'd keep an eye on this in short. Uh, in uh, Indeed, uh, very much worth uh, keeping an eye on. Um, Ron, anything uh, you want to add or, or Sash, anything you guys want to add uh, to this? Sash, you might be a little bit closer to this given Leonardo. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I think it's an extremely interesting uh, announcement. From a European perspective, it's not getting a lot of traction. I mean, just a hmm. tiny point, can't find it on the Leonardo, Leonardo website at all. The last mention of Hanwha was a joint venture that the companies, the two companies announced in 2017 on military aircraft avionics. Um, I, I think Leonardo's got to be a little bit careful. Um, 
On the plus side, they've got two separate sources of Acer technology. They've got the, uh, the Celex UK business, the old Marconi business based up in Edinburgh, and then they've got the um, uh, Celex Italia business. Um, and there are quite you know, there, there are quite strong limitations to the degree to which uh, Acer technology or indeed any technology can be transferred from the UK to Italy and to, you know, to some extent vice versa. From the press releases that we've seen, this seems to be a deal that is being signed by the Italian side of Leonardo Celex, not the UK side um, of Celex. And I think that the UK government will be very, very careful to make sure that there isn't sort of unauthorized leakage of this technology. Um, you know, even though you know Korea is clearly a uh, an, a very much an ally of Europe and, and the UK, but um, having this technology sort of fly around, fly around the world without a, a huge amount of um, control, I think is something that most governments are going to want to be extremely careful of. So I'm going to watch this carefully. It seems to me that what this is, is, is Leonardo supplying technology for Hanwha, who will then fit it to their light aircraft, rather than Leonardo getting a, uh, so Leonardo are getting a market, Hanwha are getting the technology. Um, you know, we'll see how, how much that works, how well that works. And it, but it will take several years for, for it to filter through. But I don't think this is technology coming out of the UK side. Uh, Ron, uh, let me go to you. Speaking of uh, fighters, one of China's J-20 stealth fighters uh, flew for the first time with Chinese-developed WS-15 uh, engines that could have implication for uh, implications for COMAX C-919 regional jetliner that we talked about. It's gone into service uh, now. Uh, for years, the pro-China trade voices, you know, have said, um, you know, uh, we really, 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 really had the special irreplaceable sauce in the West. And even if the Chinese uh, students went to the best universities that we have apprenticed at the best companies, um, their company, you know, Beijing stole our technology and invested boundlessly. Gosh darn it, they could never, ever, ever make a good jet engine because we got the secret sauce. Uh, even if they partnered with GE, Safran, Rolls, Pratt, nope, no way it would never happen. And skeptics like me said, well, of course, over time they would discuss yeah, I mean, I don't know how good it is, right? Good's a funny word, right? Um, but, but, right? I mean, right? And vanilla ice cream's good, chocolate ice cream's good. And I guess it depends. Um, what's my point? Um, will they eventually get an engine that would have the reliability function functionality that you'd need for a commercial airplane? Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Why wouldn't they, right? Um, I mean, it just, it's just a matter of, you know, how long and how much money you want to throw at it. Um, so is this a step in that direction? Of course it is. Uh, military engines, as you well know, uh, typically don't have the same reliability uh, constraints that you do on a commercial airliner, right? I mean, you need, you know, a commercial airliner needs a dispatch reliability of almost 99%, right? So to get that, I mean, it takes a lot of things, um, you, know, you know, support, service, blah, 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 blah. But part of that is just a reliable engine too, on top of that. Um, so, you know, do they have a reliable engine? I don't know. I haven't seen it up close, whatever. Are they on the path to getting there? Yeah, clearly they are. Um, and it's just a matter of time. Uh, and, you know, if I were running the industry in China, which clearly I'm not, uh, I would want to, you know, go system by system and, you know, try to do it. And the engine, the propulsion is key, propulsion and avionics, right? Once you right. get propulsion and avionics, you can start getting other pieces to fall into place. Um, and propulsion is a key piece of it. So it's something to really watch. Um, 
And, um, you know, from, you know, a non-Chinese engine manufacturer point of view, it's probably not scary today, but down the road, yeah, yeah, it could be. Um, and I would point out, right, I mean, everybody wants military engine hot section technology because it becomes an enabler uh, on the commercial side of the business. Um, the Rafale is powered by two M88s because uh, the government saw that it was critically important to have a French engine in that airplane as opposed to a GE engine in the airplane, which is what uh, Dassault originally wanted to do, in part because Safran needed the hot section technology to remain competitive but, but, uh, or but your, at the time. To your point, the CFM-56 arguably the most successful engine by volume, commercial engine by volume, has a military heritage. Most engines right. do, right? So it, right. it would make sense that that's the path the Chinese would go down to. Uh, Richard and Sash, you guys want to take a quick bite at, bite at this before we go to uh, Joby and their uh, extraordinarily uh, positive week in the wake of FAA uh, special airworthiness uh, certificate. Uh, that's obviously what they were doing, Richard, because that's the reason why the whole American commercial aviation system uh, went, went uh, out of whack just because of little old Joby. Go ahead, uh, Sash or Richard. Yeah, you know, multiply Joby times dozens and you see where they're coming from. Dozens, actually hundreds, 350 at this point. I don't, you know, buy that argument, but it is something people are having a plausible conversation about. Now, the Chinese engine, I mean, this is the same route the Soviets went down. You know, I mean, you can get a fully functioning combat engine. And indeed, this looks like a copy of, you know, an, a Lyoka motor, you know, or AL-41 or something like that. That's the design philosophy behind it or the design approach behind it. What does that mean in terms of commercial <clears throat> relevance? None, zero, zilch, you know. Going with Safran, um, they've never built a commercial hot section. That was a success, an actual commercial engine. It's France, the most important aerospace power in Europe. No offense, Sash. I mean, it's really hard, and there's no read-through between military and civil because, as Ron says, the reliability challenges and the economic challenges are actually greater than getting something airborne for combat purposes where you can simply take more casualties. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I just don't see it. Now, could they use this technology to come up with a Soviet-style engine that provides for autarky in the event they seal the borders and just say, okay, we're just going to build engines for our own plane is good plane. You know, sure, they could. How does that have any relevance to the commercial future of the world? None. Again, it's a future that China is simply cut off from everybody else. Who cares? That would be unfortunate for everybody if they choose to do that. It will end about as well as the Soviet Union did. Sash? I, look, I'm, I agree with, with pretty much everything that, that uh, Ron and Richard have said. I mean, the only point I would make is that ultimately what China is about is, is it's about um, import substitution. It's, about, it's a market that's been dominated by uh, Boeing, Airbus, and the Western engine companies because the Chinese have had no civil aircraft or, or engine capability of their own. And at some stage, and I've been a bull of this, and I've been wrong, or at least I've been over bullish about this, and I've been wrong, at some stage, they will buy more stuff from their indigenous uh, suppliers than they have done, and therefore they will need to buy less from, from the West. We're seeing that at the moment. Boeing's being squeezed out of the market. Um, Airbus hangs on in there because they actually build aircraft in China, but you know, it, by the end of the decade, probably not. Engines will be the last bit to go. And I agree. I think the leap from military engines to civil engines is probably wider now than it ever has been. Um, but you know, still producing a high-end or at least a high-thrust military engine uh, is not to be sniffed at. 
um, I should uh, point out the big differences between where uh, the Russians were, even with their metallurgical superiority, uh, and where the Chinese are in terms of their integration into the entire global commercial aviation ecostructure. Uh, and the fact that some of the best and brightest Chinese students you know, have gone to Cambridge and MIT and Caltech and elsewhere. Uh, apprentice that come, you know, I mean, it was a completely different situation in terms of the leg up the Chinese and China's uh, industry has. So it's going to be interesting to see as decoupling moves ahead where we uh, end up uh, with with some of this investment. And I would agree with you, Richard. But I mean, the Chinese also have a lot more investment money that they're throwing behind all of this than even France's. And France does take a alliance perspective on this, however important these uh, technologies are, I would point out the, you know, that the SCAF uh, in its earlier variants, or at least in its demonstrator form, will be powered by uh, M88 uh, power uh, as well, which is, a, which is a lovely engine, if a little bit uh, shorter on the thrust side of the equation. Uh, Richard, I'm going to go to you uh, with this because you love the EV tall market, uh, especially urban air mobility uh, so much. Joby uh, Aviation uh, got their special airworthiness certificate from uh, the FAA that says that, they, uh, that their production line can deliver uh, the first article uh, to the U.S. Air Force, which is the customer in 2024. It's going to go to Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, and obviously, the service is interested in distributing um, uh, resupply, agile resupply, as well at some point, right, there is a sense that maybe for crew recovery uh, uh, and combat search and rescue, there could be a role because obviously now a lot of pink-bodied human beings are involved in the recovery uh, of, of downed aviators. And obviously you have to have those rescue assets in place before you can conduct an operation. But but the, it's putting the cart before the horse. There's been a little bit of a bubble associated with obviously uh, the eVTOL market um, and maybe you know maybe overheated. So there are a lot of charlatans for all the legitimate people in it. Anyway, walk us through the significance of this event. Uh, you're right. I mean, I think the Joby stock had like sort of a 60% week, which was uh, terrific uh, for them. Um, you know, just, just walk us through what this uh, means, putting aside the skepticism, whether or not, you know, we're going to have urban air mobility pods landing on our front yards in a year and, you know, taking us wherever we want to go unmanned. I think you just asked me to put aside my skepticism, which means there's nothing left. I apologize. No kidding. I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> That's it. Everybody goodbye. That's the end of the well, show. Well, that was enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh boy. So much. I'll, I'll try to sum things up here quickly, but first um, pause to reflect on the sanity of people who contemplate these things for combat search and rescue, crew recovery, whatever else, all the air vehicles right now for that use air to air refueling, um, and obviously it's happy 100th anniversary, uh, first air-to-air -air refueling. Um, and that's wonderful. Uh, so how does air-to-air -air refueling work with these things with their 30-minute their ranges? Does a guy throw a battery at another guy midair uh, and he catches it and puts the new battery in? It, it, this makes no sense from a military standpoint. Contested logistics, distributed logistics, sure. How big is that requirement? I don't know, probably a few hundred air vehicles, not enough to save the rather ambitious business plans of hundreds of air vehicles. You know, I mean, everyone wants to get that market. Now, the other parts of the market, um, I'll, I'm willing to give, you know, a try every, every part of it, except this urban air mobility mass transit thing. Now, why does that right. matter? Because that's the only one that really gives you a clear path to business plans that call for hundreds or even thousands of units per year. Okay, if you're skeptical on that, then you're skeptical about the viability of many of these plans. Uh, and so you, you've got, you know, the arrival 
of some money for Joby and of course certification for their rare vehicle. I really don't know how this impacts things if they're dependent upon urban air mobility to make their business plan work. Again, there are other markets and there are some of these air vehicles that will succeed. But the idea that any of the developments this week have any long-term bearing upon the success of the business plan, I find bizarre. There's a lot to overcome here. And I should say for crew recovery, right, it was more the refinement of the technology that allows uh, truly agile, uh, right? I mean, I don't think anybody's tossing a battery to somebody in midair to to try to get them to the other side of the Pacific. But it's it's sort of the autonomy software that would be required uh, to have, uh, you know, even a, a conventionally powered vehicle to be able to go there, right? I mean, I mean, there was this sense, and Dr. Roper would talk about how each of these technologies can, can mutually support one another. Uh, uh, well, ultimately, if I could just intervene on that, just just quickly, you know, I was on the Collier Committee when we were asked to consider the uh, the KMAX Borough, um, right. which was an, an exciting capability. It's ten years ago, <laughs> mind you, right. and the idea, and and you know, we got to, you know, as we were interviewing them, obviously for the, and and all right, so how many of these are deployed in theater? And it was two. And they really couldn't come up with uses for more than that. And that was a pretty sophisticated capability. Maybe there's some technologies that will drive this to make it more capable. Uh, but, uh, I, 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 you know, when you actually get down to brass tacks and use these things in theater, it, you know, your assumptions about what technology can do for you actually kind of begin to unravel a bit. Sash, do you want to weigh in uh, briefly on this before we park for the week? I mean, look, I would love to talk about Esware Fueling, uh, Combat Search and Rescue and everything else. But actually, I think um, uh, Richard's done that extremely well. Uh, I saw a lot of um, uh, urban air mobility or future air mobility, as I think some people trying to rebrand it, um, companies at the Paris Air Show. I came back with my hands very firmly in my pockets. Uh, I think, it, you know, this is a sector where you're going to lose a lot of money uh, way before it starts being seriously investable. It's, it's speculative stuff only from my point of view. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Forward to having you guys uh, back on next week. Hope everybody uh, has a great uh, holiday weekend. Uh, Sash, I uh, hope that your lamentations will not be too bitter uh, over the course of the coming days. Um, although I look forward to seeing you guys uh, soon enough um, for the Royal International Air Tattoo and the Ro uh, Royal Air Force's annual Air and Space Chiefs Conference, which is just an absolutely, um, really a terrific, uh, thought-provoking uh, event. Thanks so very much for joining us, guys. Really appreciate it. It wouldn't be a weekend without it, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Vago. And looking forward to seeing you at Riyadh. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. And uh, happy 4th to all. Indeed. And hope everybody has a very uh, happy 4th of July uh, holiday. We will be resuming our coverage on Wednesday uh, with, uh, as I mentioned, Sam Bendett and Byron Callen joining us for the program, our special all power uh, podcast uh, with all the hosts of all of our uh, weekly podcasts joining us for a mid-year review of the most interesting stories on all of our beats, uh, whether on air, uh, space, uh, sea, or indeed uh, land uh, as well. And we have the Washington Round table and this group back again the following Sunday. Hope everybody has a great holiday. Thanks so very much uh, for tuning in and a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible each week. Thanks very much. Hope everybody has a great holiday and see you again next week. Thanks very much.